Have you ever noticed how certain words often stand in conflict or in contrast with one another? For instance, the words love and justice are often held in juxtaposition. Or words like tough and gentle are not frequently used of the same person. Or perhaps words like this, a courageous warrior and a gentle, patient soul. Those words are often not complimentary. As a matter of fact, you might think of David in this regard. Courageous warrior, gentle, patient soul? Maybe not so much. As a matter of fact, this story is sort of a personal story that illustrates, among other things, that sometimes our greatest strength might become our greatest weakness. But before we get to this story, let me remind you of where we've come from. Just last week, we saw a young man, David, go up against a giant, Goliath. He's become famous after the killing of Goliath, and as the story in Samuel goes, David is now so famous that there are, there are cheers that accompany him. Um, those of you who like to go to the IU basketball games know how that goes, right? Somebody's name is chanted when they're a favorite among the fans. David's name began to be chanted among the people, particularly after battle. And the chant went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. You can imagine what that does to warrior king Saul. There's animosity that begins to grow. David is on the outside of Saul's friendship now. But more than that, David is not only no longer a friend, according to Saul, he's an enemy. So on several different occasions, Saul attempts to kill David, trying to pin him to the wall with a spear. And then David is on the run. And for a long time after this, David is on the run. He's in the hill country, he's in the desert, and he's pursued relentlessly by Saul. The beginning of this chapter introduced us to a new episode. It said, Samuel died. Now, that might seem uneventful, but it's not. It's gigantic for the people of Israel. The prophet who had led them through all kinds of ups and downs, the one who was the chief spokesperson for God, the seer, is gone. And with him, a new era begins. Let me surmise for a moment that part of the reason this statement concerning Samuel's death is just laid right in there between the episodes of early David and later David is because now that Samuel's gone, his presence no longer influences Saul. As a matter of fact, we see down near the end of Saul's life, not only is his presence not influenced by Samuel, but Saul really wishes that Samuel were still here. So now we have a new era, 
David is in the desert, apparently on the run again, as our story begins. And we're introduced to a man, Nabal, who's very wealthy, 3,000 sheep and thousands of goat, the text says. He lives in Carmel. Um, Isn't that kind of ironic for those of us who know the geography of Indiana? A wealthy person in Carmel. Nabal's in Carmel. He's a very, very wealthy man. Um, And wealth, of course, is counted by things like land and crops and cattle. And David's men, um, while Nabal's shepherds are tending the sheep all over the place. Uh, Back then, sheep were tended in a variety of places. They wandered to green pastures. Remember Psalm 23. They, They would go from here to there and sometimes far, far away from home. And the shepherds were there to tend the sheep, to find them green pastures and still waters, and also to protect them. But shepherds couldn't always protect their sheep. Not completely, because there were wild animals everywhere, and there were raiders who would do them harm. So David, knowing this, remember David the shepherd, David, knowing this, sends his men to kind of surround Nabal's men wherever they are, to be, you might say, a patrol to watch out after the men and the sheep. And they do this. Now, when sheep shearing time comes... David sends a group of his men, ten of them, to Nabal and remind him of what they've been doing. Sir, in effect, we've been protecting you. Not a sheep was lost. It's shearing time. We would like to graciously ask for a little return. We've asked for nothing before, but now with all the plenty that you have, with this, this sheep shearing time, can you, can you give us a little? What, what is important to know is that the time of sheep shearing was a grand celebration. Um, traditionally, as a matter of fact, it was festive, and as a matter of fact, it was rather routine for people to share the bounty that they had with others, with friends and neighbors. So David is stepping into that arena, into that festive sharing time and and asking for a little in return. Now, for those of us in the 21st century, we may see this as sort of a mafia kind of thing. You know, you take care of my boys and you give me something and we'll be okay. Yeah, like that, it really wasn't that scenario. It was quite respectable. It was something that people did. It was traditional. But David's Men are absolutely rebuffed by Nabal. They're sent back, and David is angry. Now, remember the same young man who has the fiery courage to go up against Goliath when nobody else would. We now see that young man. Rebuffed, insulted by Nabal, a rich man. And what does he do? Well, he responds in much the same way that he responded to Goliath. Outrage. He says, fellas, strap on your sword. 400 of them strapped on their sword. 200 of them were left behind to guard the sheep. And off they go. And he is intent on absolutely wiping out every male of Nabal's clan. He says... 
I, I can't imagine leaving without the blood of every male in his clan being on my sword. David's outraged, and off he goes. As you know, he's being intercepted, according to our story, by Nabal's wife, Abigail. Because the servants tell Abigail the full story. They say, our master, your husband, insulted the people who guarded us. They were, and he, they confirmed this, they were around us like a wall day and night. They were a hedge of protection around us. The least David could ask for is a little return. The least Nabal could do would be to give him something. But Nabal, the fool that is your husband, is a hot-headed man, and he responded unkindly. We're in trouble, Abigail. We're in trouble. You're in trouble. Our livelihood is at stake. You've got to do something. Abigail is a very beautiful and wise woman, according to the text. And this intelligent, wise, beautiful woman says, I'll take care of it. She goes out to beat David. Just before she meets David, he has said, apparently out loud to the men who are around him, it's been useless. All this time, I've been guarding this fellow's flock and he doesn't care, he treats me this way. I'm not going to leave one man alive. And then Abigail meets him in a ravine. As they're coming towards one another, she gets down off her donkey, lays down before him as a servant does to a master, and asks for an audience. I want to read you her speech. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got down off her donkey and bowed down before David, her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please, let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you from my master, from bloodshed, and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, May your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Isn't that an interesting image? Talk about eloquent. This is an amazing speech. But the lives of your enemies will be hurled away from the pocket of a sling. 
When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my servant, when the Lord has brought my master's success, remember your servant. That's Abigail's speech. David, take a deep breath. Remember who you are. Remember what you are. Though she didn't use these words, I'll use them. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord your God, David. David's overwhelmed by her, perhaps by her beauty, perhaps by her eloquence, but certainly by her words. And he says, praise you, praise you. You've stopped me from doing something that I would regret. Thank you for being here, in effect, for stepping in and intercepting me. I won't do as I planned. The rest of the story, which I didn't read, is that Abigail leaves David and goes back home. When she arrives home, her husband Nabal is throwing a gigantic party. The text says, fit for a king. There is all kinds of meat and everything you can imagine at this feast, including just boatloads of wine. And they're drinking and having a good time, and he is absolutely drunk. She returns to a drunken husband, and she says to herself, I'll let him sleep it off. So he falls into an exhausted sleep of drunkenness and awakes the next morning, and then she goes to him and tells him this story. She tells him what happened with David. She tells him what she did to intercept the wrath of David. She tells him the whole story, apparently. And the text says, his heart failed him. And he went like a stone. And the Lord, it seems to indicate proactively, ends his life. What an amazing story. Well, that's not the last of it. David hears about what happened, and he sends word to Abigail. Why don't you be my wife? Isn't the Bible great, huh? (laughs) I kind of liked you anyway. (laughs) We don't know what it meant. I mean, a lot of it was culture. It, It was a lot of wives that David had. Wives for kingdom's sake, wives for love. Something that we can't understand is in any way matching a moral norm. And thankfully, in the new covenant, initiated by Jesus Christ, it became pretty clear early on for the church that whatever pattern was set back then, it wasn't one we were going to replicate now. That's why when people are called to service in the church, they're called to a relationship of just one spouse. 
But no matter, here's the story. So what do we do with it? I uh, Sometimes when I'm thinking about stories like this and trying to prepare them and wondering what to say and how to challenge our faith and encourage us in our walk with Christ, I wonder what would everybody who's listening to me say about the story? If I, had, if I had time, I'd love to hear what you would say. You just heard the story. I did my best to tell it and to read it. What would you think of it? What would you think are the lessons that come from that story? So I, I just want to affirm whatever it is that's going on inside your brain, okay? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to suggest that what I'm about to say is the essence of the story and there's nothing else there. That, that would be a travesty against God's Word. There's so much here. But here's what I want to say about the text, if you'll hang with me for a few minutes. And it's this. It seems to me that among other things, this is a story that illustrates the introduction that I began with, that sometimes our greatest strength can become our greatest weakness. This is the courageous David, the one who took down Goliath when everyone else was timid. No timidity here, maybe not even any patience here, just a bold, fearless warrior. He's going to strike again. And the same courage that created the bold, fearless warrior is exactly what should not be the case right now. Because so often, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness because our greatest strength is not governed by wisdom. And we don't know when to take a breath. It seems like this story illustrates that. But I like to think of lessons uh, from this story and put it this way. Have we learned the lessons of David? The lessons he learned in this story. First lesson, David's the king in waiting. And so, he must act the part. He must live the life of a king. He must not do something that would haunt him or something that would shame his nation. That's one of the messages from Abigail. Don't do something you're going to regret. God has anointed you to be the leader of the nation of Israel. Stop for a minute. Think about it. How often is it true that we live, we live for ourselves? And by that I don't mean just live selfishly. We live, although it is selfishly, we live in our own bubble thinking about our own stuff, and forgetting, may I say, that we're children of the Heavenly Father. There were not just Bob who was born in Florida, who grew up and has a point to make. We're somebody else. And so our life ought to reflect the life of a prince and a princess. In a kingdom. It's so easy for me just to be me and forget that 
in spite of my sin, which is so great. I'm a called out one. And God asked me to live not the way I want to live, but to live for him. Another lesson that it seems I assume David learned by this episode is that he just must be patient, not rush ahead, and wait on God's timing. He didn't need to kill Nabal. (laughs) I mean, look at the story. There was no reason to shed blood. It, It may be that the passage that we know so well from the New Testament is an interpretation of this one. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David, don't pull out your sword. Leave the judgment up to God. Be patient. How often is that the difficulty that we have? I know we don't strap on swords. Hopefully you don't. You don't get violent. I hope you don't. But you get restless, right? You think you got to do something, and you charge out ahead, and you make a fool of yourself, and you do irreparable harm. Am I the only one like that? I mean, you're looking at me like you don't think that's true for you. Really, honestly, don't you do that? Isn't there a lesson for here, for us? Wait patiently on the Lord. Uh, Move according to God's timing. A third lesson that seems to emerge from this story is this. The circumstances of David and Goliath and David and Nabal are absolutely different. (laughs) In the story of David and Goliath, he says rightly, who is this that defies the armies of the living God? God's honor is on the line here, and I cannot be silent. It's not God's honor that's on the line this time. Not with Nabal, it's David's honor on the line. And it's so easy for us to blur the distinction We think it's God's honor and it's nothing but little old me and my honor and the insult that came in my direction. And so I have to pause and ask whether or not I should be courageous and charge ahead to solve an injustice that is really simply an insult against me. See, that's where the words of Jesus make a lot of sense, don't they? It's not about big global justice themes when Jesus says to us, turn the other cheek. I know I might create some controversy, but that's not a theory about how war ought or ought not to exist. It's not a huge global statement about pacifism. What it is is Jesus is saying, you're going to be insulted one of these days, and it might be tomorrow, and it's going to be a personal insult. It's going to be about you. And when that happens, turn the other cheek. Don't fire back. Don't strike out. 
David, I hope, I think, at least for a moment, learned that lesson. Another uh, lesson um, that seems very similar to one I just mentioned to this, I, I think David begins to realize that patience and restraint are actually the pathway to God's plan. It's not just hold your horses, David, because you're going to mess things up. It's this. Patience and restraint is part of the power of the Almighty God. When you wait on the Lord, when you patiently restrain your vindictive nature, when you step into that kind of patience, it really is the stream of the power of Almighty God. Remember that, David. Remember that, Bob. Remember that us. Uh, the final thing, I think, is a deep lesson uh, in this text that I really do believe David did learn. He demonstrated, as a matter of fact, and one that's important to us. In that moment, in the ravine, when Abigail looks at him, and says those words, David, the mighty, fierce, courageous warrior is teachable. He listens. Let me put it another way. He listens to the voice of God and the mouth of another. And that's a lesson we need to hear. Remember uh, what I said about Samuel at the beginning? He's gone. The word of the Lord that always came through Samuel stands in contrast and in complement to the word of the Lord who comes through a wise, beautiful, intelligent, until this point, unknown woman. And David hears God's voice. He didn't hear his voice inside his own head. He doesn't sit around and ask forever, God, what should I do? I'm not suggesting we shouldn't ask that, but I am suggesting we ought to open our ears. We ought to open our eyes. We ought to listen carefully to the Word of God in the mouth of another. Because in the community of faith, that's where the Word of God most often emerges. Not inside my head, but in the mouth of another. God has designed it that way. That's what the body of Christ, among other things, is all about. So let's leave this place today, shall we? Resolve to be patient, to live like kingdom children, and to listen for the Word of God in the mouth of another. If we live like that, it's more likely that the words of Jesus will be fulfilled in the Lord's prayer that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven.
That's our charge. Hey, we're up to it. We can do this. God is good. Let's pray. Lord, you've been so gracious and kind to us in so many ways. Of course, chief among those ways that we celebrate, um, really every time we gather is the grace that came to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for the Christ who fulfilled in so many ways the unfulfilled promises of King David and who referred back to himself as the prophets did in that line. We thank you, Lord, that your son Jesus Christ also stepped into the shoes of every David who ever lived, us included, and walked where we walked, suffered what we suffered, felt the same impulse and urge to be impatient, to seize things with his own power and might. It seems, Lord, that that's really what the devil was tempting him to do in the desert during those 40 days. And Lord, you gave us a pattern in him that he would be the servant of the Most High God and that he would do what he was called to do on earth so that we might have not only a model to follow, but that we might have, because of the power of his resurrection, the ability to follow. We pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit that you sent on behalf of your people to glorify Jesus Christ, you will enable us this week to live in such a way that we shine as stars in the universe, as Paul said, and live as children of the kingdom as Christ would want us to. And we pray, Lord, that when we do live patiently and humbly, you will give us just a little glimmer, not so much that would make us proud, but just a little glimmer of what you've done because we've been obedient. It will spur us on to love and good works, and hopefully it will spur us on to gratitude for your grace, which is what we depend on every waking hour. For these things we thank you and pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.